Welcome to Friends in Fiction, five best-selling authors and the stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, Patty Callahan Henry, and Mary Alice Monroe are five longtime friends with more than 80 published books to their credit. In 2020, they created Friends in Fiction to provide author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing, and to highlight independent bookstores. These friends discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hi there. Hi, ladies. Hi out there. We are so thrilled to see you all here tonight. Spring has sprung, the world is turning around, and we are just two weeks away from celebrating the one-year anniversary of Friends and Fiction. Can you believe it? We've been doing And in fact, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I think it was this week, a year ago, that we had the idea to do this. So it, I think it started with a glass of wine, right? It did, as <laughs> all so of cheers. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. So it is such an honor to be spending time with all of you here on the show and on our Facebook page each week. So let's get started tonight. I'm Kristen Harmel. I'm Christy Woodson-Harvey. I'm Patty Callahan-Henry. I'm Mary Alice Monroe. And I'm Mary Kay Andrews. This is Friends in Fiction. Tonight, we are thrilled to welcome two of my favorite historical fiction authors, Kate Quinn and Stephanie Dre, each of whom released a sweeping new novel about extraordinary women this month. We'll be talking to both authors about their careers and why it's so fulfilling to write lost stories from history. And we'll be discussing Christy Woodson Harvey's essay this week for Parade.com. But first, before you start doing all of that, Christy has something amazing to share with us. The trailer for her new book, Under the Southern Sky, which comes out in just... Three weeks, although who's counting? Three weeks, (laughs) can you believe it? So Christy, let's take a look at the trailer and then we want to hear all about this new novel. Thank y'all so much. Um, I'm so excited. Actually, I got one of my first author copies in today. So I'm so excited to see it in my life. I like that. Isn't it always fun to see the spine, you know? Um, But I'll be really brief. But um, Under the Southern Sky is a story about an investigative journalist named Amelia, who inadvertently discovers that a cluster of frozen embryos belonging to her childhood Mm -hmm. friend Parker and his late wife Greer have been deemed abandoned. So she, of course, has to tell Parker this. And then he is put in the situation to have to decide what to do with what is effectively the last remaining part of this woman that he loved so much. So there's lots of uh, Southern charm and family dynamics in this story. And I cannot wait to share it with you. 
Um, and our friends at A Likely Story, who's our bookstore tonight, um, are offering 10% off of, of all of our books, but including Under the Southern Sky. And if you order the book tonight, you get one of our super fun pairs of Friends in Fiction sunglasses. I don't know if you can see them. Let me hold oh, it yes. up. Oh, oh, that's yes. the wrong side. Y'all stream your gets me every time. CDC <laughs> Friends in Fiction because it gets really so funny cool. under the southern sky. Super so, cute. Oh. You got to have your shades. That's awesome. That's awesome. I cannot wait for everybody to get their hands on a copy because I'm super special. I already have mine. Ooh. <laughs> so do I. I'm special too. Oh, yeah. Okay. Speaking of getting your hands on amazing things, let's take a moment to thank our partners, Mama Geraldine's and Page One Book Subscriptions. We adore them both. And the code FAB5, named after duh, the five of us, will give you a discount on both websites. We'll be telling you more about them later in the show. Sean, oh, you did already. Oh, he's so smart. He already showed you the band. He's on top of it. There you go. (laughs) And we'll, we'll also be telling you about our independent bookstore of the week, A Likely Story in Sykesville, Maryland, and reminding you just why it's so important, really, today still to keep supporting independent bookstores. But for now, let's talk a little bit about the essay Christy wrote as part of our Friends in Fiction partnership with Parade Magazine and Parade.com this week. So in her essay, she tells us about a fateful Easter in her family and one egg that went very, 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 very bad. (laughs) It's hilarious and heartwarming. And with Easter coming up this week, we would love to talk about it. Christy, can you give us sort of a brief recap of that essay? Oh, yes. It's a, I'll, it's an Easter I'll never forget. Um, Easter egg dying is like a big deal in our house. I mean, it is truly like our neighbors from Salisbury just got down to the beach and we're like texting to be like, when are we dying Easter eggs? I mean, we've done it. I used to like come home from college. We've done it every year since we were like little kids together. Um, and so, you know, little Will has been like indoctrinated into these Easter eggs. And so the year he was two and a half, he did not want to give up the dyed Easter eggs, but we were like, no, you know, it's after Easter. We give the dyed Easter eggs. You still have your candy ones. Fast forward, there was this terrible smell in our playroom and we could not figure out what it was coming from. And I mean, to the point that people were coming in to take walls out of our house, like it's inexplicable how awful it was. You couldn't tell where it was coming from. Oh, we can awful. imagine. Yeah. <laughs> So um, I finally, I go into his playroom and I'm getting his little Easter basket and I accidentally drop it on the floor and one of the eggs comes tumbling out and he had hidden one of the dyed eggs inside a plastic egg. And you know, I'm not kidding. Like the minute I took that basket out and threw it away, like the smell was gone. I mean, it was like we had men in masks coming to tear walls out. And as soon as that egg was gone, everything was fine. It was, it was hilarious. But anyway, y'all read, y'all read the story because it was kind of funny, but um, it's all about our Easter traditions and just, you know, how they help get us through the hard times. I love it. <laughs> Ladies, any other lessons learned kind of the hard way holiday at lessons learned the hard way? Well, don't let big kids or even the parents <laughs> join the Easter egg hunt. That's the inner child comes rushing out and you haven't seen competition until you've seen so a middle middle age, like grade 12 year old kid <laughs> running out to collect eggs with all the little toddlers whose eyes are big and like they're all gone. So oh, no. it's um, they leave the toddlers in the dust. <laughs> 
You know, my friend Susan always says it's not really a family gathering until somebody cries or somebody goes to the emergency room. So just FYI. (laughs) Speaking of emergency rooms, if birthdays count as holidays, I would say my lesson came. um, So three years ago, the day before Jason, my husband's 40th birthday, and two days before Noah's second birthday, we were cleaning the house because we were about to have this huge, you know, blowout party for both of them. A 40th birthday, a second birthday. It was a big deal. And while cleaning the house, I slipped on a wet tile floor, shattered my kneecap into several pieces, had to go to the ER. So clearly now it's a holiday. Um, and I spent Jason's 40th birthday in surgery. So oh, fun. the lesson, oh yeah, good times. Yeah, my, <laughs> my knee still aches. It's amazing. But the lesson I learned, I was trying to make everything perfect, which just mm-hmm. was not us. We are not perfect mm-hmm. people. Um, and in the process, I ruined everything. So since then, it has given me permission to just be myself a little bit more freely, um, imperfect floors and all. Well, mine's a holiday too, but it was Christmas. I'd been married for two years. We were in our brand new house and I was due in two weeks with my firstborn daughter and I was feeling mighty proud of everything. The new house, <laughs> the new baby, the new husband, and we were having guests over for a Christmas dinner and I snuck behind the Christmas tree to turn on the stereo, forgetting I was nine months pregnant. <laughs> And knocked over the entire tree. The ornaments shattered. The gifts were crushed. And the moral of the story was, yeah, the moral of the story is truly pride comes before the fall. That's hysterical. That's a great story. Well, so all of you out there, we would love to hear your stories too. We all do go back and read the comments after the show. So if you have a, a, you know, something like this to share, we would love to see it. Um, and you know, laugh with you since now you can laugh at us, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So now without further ado, let's welcome our amazing guests tonight. And remember, if you have a question for them, please, please put them in the comments. We'll be pulling a few during the show and, uh, we would love to ask your burning questions for them. So let's meet Kate and Stephanie. Christy, do you want to start us off? I sure do. Kate Quinn is the New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of The Alice Network, The Huntress, and The Rose Code, which came out earlier this month and debuted at number two on the New York Times list. (laughs) And I'm sorry for my glitchy sound. I am far, far away across the Pacific Ocean with my daughter and granddaughter. Um, Stephanie, Dre- it's taking a long time for my voice to reach you. <laughs> no, actually, you're good. <laughs> Stephanie Dre, whose book came out yesterday, I'm so excited, is the New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of America's First Daughter and My Dear Hamilton, along with co-author Laura Comey. And on her own, she is the author of The Women of Chateau Lafayette, which just came out yesterday and is already a huge hit. And both women have written extensively about other time periods too, not just World War II. Stephanie has written, among other things, a series about the daughter of Cleopatra and Mark Antony. While Kate Kate, uh, has written four novels in the Empress of Rome saga and two novels set during the Italian Renaissance. But like the five of us, the most important thing between them is that they're friends with each other. Mm-hmm. So let's bring them out. Welcome, Kate and Stephanie. Yay! 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 Hello. Welcome, welcome. Hi, ladies. We are 
are so thrilled to have you on with us. So let's get started with all of our questions for Kate and Stephanie. And Kate, since your book came out first, could you begin by telling us briefly about The Rose Code? Yes, I absolutely can. Um, and thank you so much for having me. This is just such a thrill, believe me. Uh, the Rose you Code is... The Rose Code tells the story of three very different women, a beautiful blue-blooded debutante, a tart-tongued London shop girl, and a shy crossword-solving spinster who are all recruited to the mysterious Bletchley Park, which is a secluded English country manor where the best and brightest minds in Britain work in direst secrecy, breaking Hitler's supposedly unbreakable military codes. But as we all know, when you start throwing words like unbreakable around, fate laughs. Just ask the Titanic. <laughs> Or just ask the Pulaski going back there to you. There oh, you go. Yes. Nice plug. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's great. It's such a great book. And Stephanie, can you tell us a little bit about the women of Chateau Lafayette? I would love to. Uh, but first, I do also want to thank you for having us. I just think this show is spectacular and fun. Oh, oh, um, you're all so adorable. I can't say it. <laughs> <laughs> So the Women of Chateau Lafayette is based on the true story of an extraordinary castle in France. It is actually the birthplace of Marquis de Lafayette, who some of your viewers might know from the play Hamilton as America's favorite fighting Frenchman. The story <laughs> follows actually the women in his life, including his wife, Adrienne, who was an amazing heroine, our French founding mother. And the women who followed in her footsteps at the castle in World War One and World War Two. So it's a story of three women, three wars, one world-changing legacy, and the castle at the heart of it all. Wow, two incredible books, and we are so lucky to have you guys here tonight to talk about them. And since friendship is at the heart of our show, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. So not only are the two of you friends, but your characters are friends too. Because in an act of support for each other, you collaborated on the short story, If the Hat Fits, that features characters from each of your books, which I think is just incredible. And you also collaborated with four other authors on the novel Ribbons of Scarlet about the women of the French Revolution. So I have heard through the grapevine that part of your amazing friendship is that you have a little bit of a um, launch day support system ritual when it's not the pandemic, of course. So, um, Stephanie, do you want to start us off and tell me a little bit about that? Well, um, normally what we do is we go to lunch together. And I believe the first time that we met uh, was Kate's release a, a million years ago. We went to a restaurant and we had goat. And then I Ooh. realized what okay. a horrible driver Kate Quinn is. <laughs> <laughs> I am not. Blasphemy and lies. Well, it's dangerous driver. While she drives, makes up for it, right? She peeled out of that parking lot and left rubber on the, oh the pavement. Oh and I God. thought, that's my girl. I like her. <laughs> we got there. Nobody was arrested. It was fine. It's fine. Every, all is well that ends well. Yeah, so it, we, it really became a tradition after that, that when anybody had a release, and, you know, this isn't just for Stephanie and me, it was for our whole circle of ladies when we were living in Maryland at the same time, but when anyone had a release, anybody who was available would take her out to lunch, 
And the aim was, is that they would then separate her from her phone and remove it from the table and attach her to the table to a drink with handcuffs if necessary. And there would be two to three hours in which she would be unable to hit refresh on her Amazon launch. I love it. That's so it was the idea was that for two or three hours, your friends would make you relax and celebrate whether you liked it or not. Oh, that's lovely. Incredible. Okay. And can you just tell us too briefly, what is it like when you've worked together? Kate, do you want to start us off on that one? Well, we actually had this conversation a little bit with uh, when we were co-writing our little short story, If the Hat yeah. Fits, and we had already written together in a number of other things, but it was so much fun to go back to it because we were both agreeing that it's like a kind of fun mind melt, you know, yeah. because we know each other well, we have styles that mesh, and mm-hmm. there's a fun thing where if Stephanie takes a decides to go off with something in prose, it's like, I know why she's doing it. I can see why she's doing it. And I can follow her where her mind has taken her and vice mm. versa. Mm. So if you want to add to that, that's cool. But it really is kind of like a mind meld where you're like, oh, love my that. God, this is like, like, it's, a, it's like a weird thing of like falling in love with someone. Yeah. It's like falling in love with a colleague when you realize your brains run on the same track. And it's just it. as magic. That. That's a great description. Mm-hmm. Stephanie, you have anything to add? Do it. I, I can't outdo that except yeah. to say that I'm in love with Kate's brain too. <laughs> I think we're all a little in love with Kate's brain. Yeah. Are. We actually yeah. were discussing the brilliance of the two of you before yeah. you came on. So we are really in awe. Absolutely. So we all wrote about women in history. And we all, are you hearing me okay? Am I oh, yes. No problem. Yeah, you're good. Okay, good. And we all chose women's points of views. And one thing that stood out to me is your women were doing incredible, creative, world-changing things during turning points in history. And Stephanie, you have Adrienne Lafayette, which you mentioned, the French founding mother, which I'd never heard of her described that way. So I really like that. Mm-hmm. And then the American Revolution, then World War One with Beatrice Chandler, World War Two with Martha Simone. And Kate, you have the three incredible code breakers that you described. And Kate, we did an event together the other day, and you said something I just loved. And since you mind meld with your friend Stephanie, I bet she would say the same thing, which is that part of your impetus is where are the women's voices? Where are they? And that's what I asked when when I wrote that too. But I want you both to talk about the challenges and payoffs of writing such strong women. And most of them are based on real historical figures. And as we close out Women's History Month, Kate, you talked about this so beautifully the other day. Why is it so important? So the challenges of it, the real women, and why is it so important? Kate, you want to jump in first? Absolutely. And it's really one of the things that I think my subconscious realized what I was doing before I did, because I must have written maybe six books before I realized that what I really was passionate about was taking a look at something in history, whether it's an event, whether it's a war, whether it's a place, a time, and then saying, what were the women up to? What were the ladies doing? 
because that you know they were up to something. It's just that yeah. it's probably not recorded in the broad strokes of history. And so you could yeah. you can't find these women. It's just a matter of looking for them. And my goal really, and I'm not gonna say it's like, well, aren't I special having this goal? Everybody here has this goal. <laughs> but my goal is really to do my bit in trying to shine a little bit more light on the ladies of the past yeah. and trying to, you know, bring them even a little bit more into prominence. And it's one of those things where, you know, just for those who might think, well, aren't women being talked about more than ever? They are. And that's really wonderful to see. And I want that trend to continue. But, you know, a book I came across not long ago, which was about the Italian Renaissance, a scholarly nonfiction book published in the teens, not an old book. Wow. Their family tree of the Medici listed none of the women. Wow. Which, led my, yeah. which led my mother to call me and say, apparently the Medici men uh, like undersea bivalves uh, reproduce by themselves <laughs> without there needing to be any women involved. So isn't that a no fun scholarly take? Wow. <laughs> and that's the kind of thing that we still see. And even when women aren't being written out, there is still this idea that if it's if art is for women and by women and about women, that it's patted on the head and sent into the pink corner in a little bit of a way. There's a pink ribbon tied around it and people say, oh, isn't that pretty? But it does not get the same kind of respect. And I know that all the ladies here are probably familiar with the whole thing of like what you write, like chiclet, you know, like beach reads, like women's fiction. And there's that little nose scrunch sometimes. And, you know, my, my goal really is that I want to see the achievements of women celebrated. I want to see light shown on the women of the past who did amazing things. And I want to read these books. I want to write these books. And I want, I hope this you know movement continues through many women writers, many women creators, you know, and everywhere we see them. What about you, Stephanie? I'm getting so um, I am a graduate of Smith College, which is a women's college. And um, I think that gave me a really a, a special appreciation for the role of women in history and the opportunities that we had in my generation um, to do great things. But where are your examples? How do you know what you can accomplish yeah. if you don't know the past? So yeah. I've always been interested in what women were doing. And as Kate said, they've always been up to something. Uh, their accomplishments are usually underappreciated. And, you know, Kate and I also joke about this, is that we get frustrated that in our business, we all write about women in history. And yet men will often shun these books if there's a woman on the cover because she exists in clothes. And that somehow means that it's not for them. And I, I find this bewildering. It's half the population at any given time in history. So it's okay if a woman in a dress is on the cover. You're still going to learn important things about the world, about humanity and about history in those books. Um, for me, my work has oddly all been about legacy builders. And I didn't really think about how important that was until I visited Picpus Cemetery in France, which is where um, the Lafayettes are buried. And not only did Adrienne found that cemetery with her sisters, but there's a plaque that keeps it up. And one of the plaques there is from the Daughters of the American Revolution. And it, it just suddenly occurred to me that three of the biggest historical sites that I have used for my research have been maintained and helped along by the Daughters of the Rev American Revolution, and that women have carried wow. these historical legacies forward, and that's 
really important. It is. Thank you. Uh, well said. I feel like. You. Go ahead, Marielle. Oh, I'm done. <laughs> Sorry, we, we have this delay, the, the, the Hawaii ah, delay. <laughs> the Hawaii delay. <laughs> Patty, do you have a follow-up or do you want me to jump in with my question? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go okay. Ahead. I, have, it's my, I have a question for Kate. And hi, Kate. You did it again. That's all I can say. I couldn't put it down. <laughs> so Patty asked Thank you about you. the women. And I'd like to ask you about the place. And in the book, this is the English country estate of Bletchley Park, which is also known as the legendary top secret codebreaker decryption facility. And the codebreakers played a huge role in World War II. I love codebreaker stories. I loved in particular your mention of the fact that the women played real strong roles in this facility and that all the people were accepted on their own merit. And it was years, if not decades, ahead of its time in that way. So here's my question. What drew you to write about this place and this time? And especially the idea that it was a kind of a fortress for the future, this idealistic place of what a society could look like even in the midst of a war. So can you talk about Bletchley Park and why it was so extraordinary and what moved you to write about it? Well, I'd be delighted to because I was fortunate enough to spend uh, about four days at Bletchley Park uh, pre-pandemic, pre-lockdown when I was researching for this mm. novel. And, you know, I encourage anyone who can do manage a trip to the UK as the world reopens to visit. It's a superb visitor center and yeah. historic site now. It's mocked up to look the way it would have looked in the 40s. So you can honestly feel like you are walking into the past. I got absolute mm. shivers. I bought out the gift shop of <laughs> every book they had. Uh, it was just incredible. And the thing I really realized, as my, re especially as I was doing my research, was that in addition to the people who were characters in the Rose Code, the park was going to be a character because mm. it really was. As you know, and I'm, I can tell from the way you asked the question that you got the sense of it as a character, which is, delights me, because it was this place where, you know, it was. It sounds at first sight, you know, like a, like a quirky Hollywood pitch, you know, you know, it's like it's sneakers meets Downton Abbey, but in World War II, you know, <laughs> a country house that's stuffed with these sometimes very odd people. And that was one of the things I liked about it was that there was a real, um, a remarkably flexible attitude toward the people they hired. Uh, they realized that some of the folks who are good at code breaking are going to have slightly quirky minds and personalities. And they decided that was okay. You know, people did not have to fit into some corporate or societal norm mm -hmm. in order to be accepted. It was pretty much if you could do the work you were accepted, your voice was heard. And that meant that women found a level of acceptance there that they were not likely to find in other job job posts at that point in the 40s and in the, you know, the 50s afterwards. You know, it also meant that a lot of folks who were neurodivergent or at least not quite neurotypical, as we would call it today, although certainly they would not have had the words then, they were also accepted. You know, the square pegs were not required to fit into the round hole. They were just required to do the work. And so... 
I really did have this idea from the start that Bletchley Park was like this little bit of this Alice in Wonderland place, you know, fell down the rabbit hole and you fell into this strange spot and where, you know, you might see odd things, you know, code breakers cycling to work in gas masks to avoid hay fever. Or, you know, there's another guy who at least once like pitched his tea mug into into the lake uh, because he got a eureka moment while he was drinking tea (laughs) by the lake and you'd see and you know people playing rounders games or doing highland dancing on the lawn you know in their after work clubs when they were off shift because you know they work hard you play hard and you know i just thought that what a place this was and what a thing to celebrate and so Depicting Bletchley Park itself as a character, just as much as any of the people who worked there, really became an important goal for me in writing The Rose Goat. And you really succeeded. It really was a very strong sense of place. I felt I was there. I was getting hot when the air conditioning was broken. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. And I'm not trying to uh, romanticize it. The work was hard. The AC was terrible. There was no AC really in a lot of those huts. It was freezing in the wintertime. Those Coke stoves smelled awful. But my goodness, did these men and women, you know, do extraordinary things under extraordinary circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to go jump back in time. Stephanie, you've said that it was Adrienne Lafayette, the wife of American Revolutionary War hero, the Marquis de Lafayette, who, by the way, has ties to Savannah, where Patty and I have both set book. There's a Lafayette Square in Savannah. There's a Lafayette Square everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like it, yeah. <laughs> so the one of my characters, the one we all talk about, Charlie, the boy, he his middle name was Lafayette because Lafayette was at his baptism. Yeah. Ah. Oh, wow. That's oh. one of those things Stephanie and I talked about when she was researching this because we message each other all the time while writing is that Lafayette is like the deus ex machina of American history. (laughs) Whenever we need to be saved, Lafayette basically comes out of the sky in a basket, like on a French stage, and, you know, here's to save the day, and then, you know, goes off somewhere else, which is why there's a Lafayette Square pretty much everywhere, because so it's it's six degrees of of, uh, Marquis de Lafayette. Yeah, right. <laughs> you're, you're right. Right. You're right. Give me a, a, a fun idea for a game. Okay. I'm going to go with that. Um, Stephanie, anybody who's seen Hamilton will know Lafayette, but there's so much more to this Frenchman's story, as you yourself know from writing America's First Daughter with um, First Daughter and My Dear Hamilton with Laura Kamoy. Can you talk to us a little bit about why that Revolutionary War period uh, continues to appeal so much to you? And why Adrian Lafayette in particular intrigued you so much. You know, I think so many of us, it's been a long time, unless we took a lot of history in college, since we studied, you know, the American Revolution. Yeah. So I think that the American Revolution is relevant in every age. Every generation has to contend with it anew. Um because democracy is fragile. The American experiment yeah. is still an experiment and yeah. we're still perfecting it. And so it's endlessly fascinating, both because of what it was and what each generation interprets it to be. We look at these founding fathers with very different eyes now than we did even when I was growing up. So I find them fascinating. And Lafayette in particular 
is sort of the most lovable of our founding fathers. He's, he's not terribly problematic. He's <laughs> always ahead of his time. He's extremely idealistic. And he did most of what he did out of a sense of generosity of spirit and a desire to change the world. And a lot of his contemporaries believed that he was naive and silly and he failed at many things, but he failed at more things than other men have ever tried. And he succeeded at things that no one else succeeded at. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm paraphrasing his biographer here, uh, but he couldn't have done it without Adrian, his loyal wife, who was supporting him in France against her very angry family when he left for the American Revolution and even the wrath of the king. And she's someone who just showed enormous courage under extraordinary circumstances, as most of the heroines in this book did in their own generations. Um, I know we've had a very difficult year right now. And for me, it's been really inspiring to look at the stories of these women and think to myself, we have, we are in having a difficult time, but there have been difficult times in the past and women have reached within themselves and found the strength to triumph. And so, so can we. Won't it be fascinating to think about what women of this time, this contemporary time, people will be writing about 20, 40, 60 years from now. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. yeah. What a crazy thought. Um, so you, I love that idea of history teaching us things that um, that are so applicable today. You know, I felt like that with Patty's book, Surviving Savannah, too. She asked that great question, how do you survive the surviving? Which is, I think is a question that we're all asking ourselves as we come out of the, the mm-hmm. pandemic now. So, yeah, that, that's yeah. very relevant. So I, this question comes to both of you from one of our Friends in Fiction members, Susan Schwartz Seligman who says your books require an extraordinary amount of research and you're both amazingly meticulous and thorough. Is the research your favorite part of the process? And how do you know when it's time to pause from that research and dive into the writing of the story? So that's such a great question. And I will add to that this question. What appeals to you so much about writing about the past rather than the present? So Stephanie, do you want to start us off with that? Um, I will start off by saying that I do love the research. It is my favorite part. I go down the rabbit hole and the thing that stops me is Kate Quinn. (laughs) (laughs) And she says, she holds an intervention and she says, no one cares what color grapes they had in France 2000 years ago. Just call them grapes and move on. And I say things to her like... But I did all this research and I'm pretty sure they were red grapes. <laughs> and I will change a whole paragraph so that it needs that detail because I did the research. So, uh, oh, gosh, I know. <laughs> so Kate is, my, uh, is the person who keeps me on task and tells me things like no one cares what color grapes it is or most recently no one cares what breed of dog it is. Just say it's a dog and move on. I do. Oh, Mary Alice cares. Well, there you go. She cares a lot. Back to the Mary Alice needed to know. Exactly. She's your audience. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, nobody cares is my comment that I write in the uh, sidelines whenever she has something like, 
do we know what hotel this is? Do we know what, you know, do we know what, where the map it is? Do we know where it was? And I'm just like, no one cares. And we had a whole discussion once where it was actually in, uh, for the writing of uh, Women of Chateau Lafayette, when I stopped her from going down a rabbit hole because she's like, I want Beatrice to, I want my World War One era heroine to look out and see, the, you know, the tallest building in the cities because it's a cool thing that I can mention, uh, you know, as a little bit of local, you know, historic flavor. But I don't know if she could see that building from there. So I need to find a map of New York City in, in 1912 and see where she could have been standing and if the building would have been visible. And I'm like, no. <laughs> All you do is you say she looked out the window in the direction of that building, and that completely covers you from needing there to go, go down the rabbit hole and find the map of the city in 1912. You have a deadline. Oh, but that's the fun part. <laughs> Genius. It is the fun part. And I have to admit, uh, research is my jam, too. And I don't think you can do historical fiction if it's not your jam or you're just never going to enjoy this part of it. But it is true that sometimes uh, the question of how when are you done researching and when do you uh, start the writing does need to come in the form of an intervention from a friend, your agent, your editor, who is reminding you that you know Time's Winged Chariot is running closer on your deadline and it really is time for you to do some actual writing now. So that's that's we all rely on those outside influences. And this is why we have Google chats that are up more or less all the time. So we can drop these questions in and somebody else sometimes can pull the reins on us. Oh, oh interesting. That. That's a great idea. Yeah. And someone's saying every writer needs a Kate. I love that. Yes. Kate, can you be our Kate too, please? And I, absolutely, because I will have to admit, I feel like such a research slob uh, compared to someone like Stephanie, who totally will run down yeah. anything in the world, mm-hmm. because I am lazy. I have to admit, I am like, okay, do I have to find it? Do I have to find this fact? Do I have to? Because if I don't have to, I will do an end run in the language and I will find a way to get around having to state what this fact actually is, if it means I don't have to look it up. Now, if it's something I really do need to know, yes, I will go down that rabbit hole and I will not come out until I have it. But I will do the end run because I believe very firmly you do all the research in the world that you need to do. You should not get hung up doing research that is unnecessary. And we've all done the thing now and then where you spent, you blew a whole day's writing time looking something up and that paragraph got cut in your, in your, yes, or like trying to cram in something because you worked so hard hard. finding it and you're like, you know, it doesn't serve the story, but you can't bear to take it out. You had 19 tabs open, Dennis. Exactly. That's right. You can't do it. It's just oh. You even have a picture of it, and you need to describe that picture you've been saving on desktop. Yes, Yes. I think we need an actual official support group for this. I would. I would just be the first one. This is a problem, serious problem I have. All right, so ladies, switching tracks a little bit. You know, we talk on this show a lot about independent bookstores. Kate, um, I know you're a great supporter of independent bookstores. Can you talk to us a little bit about why it's important to support? I mean, you know, we support all bookstores, but, you know, why, especially as the world's reopening, it's so important to keep supporting our indies? Well, it's one of those things where, you know, I am grateful to all those online retailers, you know, Amazon and various other ones, too. You know, any way people can get books is wonderful. But the fact is, is that 
just because, you know, Amazon and otherwise may be convenient, but independent bookstores have done their part to move into this modern world that we live in. They're doing worldwide mailing. They're doing curbside service. They're doing everything they can to get books into our hands more easily, just like any huge conglomerate. So the whole idea of it's easier should not just it should not discourage us from you know ordering from our indies rather than from some huge giant you know giant publication that which with you know possibly evil empire at the top and yeah. you know it's one of those things too where independent bookstores quite often have you know such a storied long history they yeah. have, have some have some been in the same family or in the same city for generations and you know there's small businesses that are trying to you know make it through this pandemic just like us and even now more than ever, I think we need to support them because they're they're aware that books are the only thing that are getting so many of us through lockdown sane. Yeah. So yeah. they're trying to meet our needs and keep us from going crazy. We need to keep, keep them in business by ordering our books from them. And I have so many favorite bookstores that have been so wonderful in hosting me for events, in promoting their, you know, authors and their sellers. And you know, they have given so much to writers. I want us to give back to by promoting them any chance we can. Hmm. So true. So well said. Stephanie, um, can you tell us a little bit about A Likely Story, which is the bookstore that you chose tonight? I can't wait to tell you about them. So they are about 20 minutes from where I live, which in Maryland is extremely local. And um, they have developed just such a wonderful sense of community. Every event I've done there has been absolutely lovely. The people, the readers are so engaged the booksellers understand the genre, especially they love historical fiction. So that makes them all the more dear to me. Um, but they understand what everyone wants to read. And they are up on the best recommendations that they that readers can get. And I, I don't know that you necessarily always get that from an algorithm. That personal touch yeah. is alive and well at a likely story. And I'm so grateful for how they've helped me with this launch. Uh, they've been selling signed books of, of um, the women of Chateau Lafayette. And so uh, I send them many hugs and kisses. And I can, I can second, I've had events with them too. Everything has always been stellar. And I think Stephanie really touched on it the best is that you're not going to get a personal recommendation from an algorithm and a knowledgeable bookseller or librarian. I will always also plug to libraries. For sure. A knowledgeable bookseller or librarian is someone who will, you know, turn you on to something you may never have read before because they know how books go together and how there might be a whole, you know, underlying theme that you're reading in that you don't even know about, and they will feed it. They're the best pushers in the world. I love that. Well, it sounds like an incredible store. I hope we, I get to go there someday. And a, just a reminder that A Likely Story is offering 10% off of The Rose Code, The Women of Chateau Lafayette, and all of the Friends and Fiction authors spring and summer 2021 releases right now with the code FFMARCH21. The link will be on our Facebook page, and it's a great opportunity for all of you to um, get these great books at a great price and help support a great store. And when you pre-order Under the Southern Sky, <laughs> you get your great friends in fiction sunglasses. So there you go. I love it. Whoop, whoop. Whoop. Uh, Mary Alice, you're, you're muted. 
I'm trying. I don't want you to hear my canary singing in the background. <laughs> no worries. I just want to take a moment to thank our partner, Mama Geraldine's. And whether you love the cheese straws or the cookies, they're delicious. You won't be disappointed. They are even having gluten-free. So remember, you can get 20% off orders on their website, mamageraldines.com, with the code FAB5. And while those of you who are already having your cheese straws and are snacking on right now, I'm going to ask a question from Darlene Michelini. How did you pick the names of your characters, the ones not based on real people? Do you ever base them on family members, friends, or classmates? And either one can answer. Well, I can start with that, I guess. Um, history sometimes gives you the names, of course, but it's also something where naming the character, if you haven't named a, uh, if you, they don't have a name that is dictated by time, that's a little bit different. And you really need, I found you really need to know the name before you know the character. And I have sometimes had characters who walked in and absolutely knew what their names were. And I've had some that, you know, were a little shy with me and I would try names on them and, you know, it wouldn't sound quite right until, you know, it would finally come on in. And then I was like, yes, that's the name. And then, you know, it does, it, although it does sometimes lead to some funny things because sometimes, you know, a certain name might sound a little strange for the time period. And this is where you end up cruising, you know, what kind of baby names were being given to, you know, babies born in the 1920s. You know, you're cruising that kind of list. And I can also tell you, too, that um, I have freaked out more than one uh, college roommate. And it, once, unfortunately, my mother uh, <laughs> and they were really quite perturbed to see a baby name book. Very well thumbed. <laughs> my uh, nightstand. And uh, you know, that, that entails some very quick explanations. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> How about you, Stephanie? So um, I like to keep a naming chart with every project. Ooh. And so oh, I try not, so smart. Reuse, <laughs> try not to reuse um, letters. Uh, and it usually oh, yes. works out pretty well. But I had a very giant cast in the women of Chateau Lafayette. So we were getting into the X's <laughs> pretty, pretty far in the alphabet in there. Wow. Um, but that's how I'll generally start picking out character names of the fictional people. Really um, unless the plot suggests something, which in the women of Chateau Lafayette, it, it did for Marta. And I, I know we've all done that thing where you end up thinking, okay, I need to name this her character's sister's boyfriend. And it yeah. needs to start, it can start with any letter that is a T, an X, a Z, a G, <laughs> or an F, because everything else is used. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that always happens. <laughs> Um, we want to uh, take a minute to thank our sp sponsor, Page One Books, where you can also use the same code, FAB510, to get 10% off your first subscription. And, you know, that's what they do, book subscriptions. Awesome, hand-picked, personalized book subscriptions from an independent bookstore right to you. So if you like to read, this is a great way to be surprised by new and exciting books each month. And it's a great gift to give somebody. Um my granddaughter is a huge reader, and I, and I think I'm going to have to get her that. Sean has got, oh, there we go. Yay, um, page one books. And now I have a question for both of you ladies from Vicki Davis, who wants to know if you know the whole story before you start writing, or does it, does it follow along as you go along? So I think that's a long way of saying pants or a plotter. <laughs> yeah. 
So um, I think for historical fiction that's biographical, you tend to know the large outlines of the story just because you know what the person's life was. Mm-hmm. So in that respect, you do know what's going to happen. What you don't know is what the shape of this story is going to be because people's real lives don't fit into a narrative form. They have boring trips that they take that you might have to take out or things might not happen in a nice, neat uh character arc. So I always feel like I'm chiseling a story out of what already exists when I'm telling biographical fiction. So the answer is sort of yes and no. I'm not really, I'm definitely a plotter, but there's some inevitable pantsing as I (laughs) really that story out. I'd say for me, I'm becoming more of a plotter the more I go along. Um, It has generally been my thing that I will do quite a bit of plotting. I do a lot of character exercises in advance, you know, like trying to figure out who is this person? What are their wounds, their talents? What are the ghosts that drive them? What are their weaknesses, their strengths? That's the kind of thing I like to know before I start writing. And I generally speaking will know if it's like a three-act story, I will have a very good idea when I begin drafting of what happens in Act 1. I'll have a pretty good idea of what happens in Act 2, and I kind of know what happens in Act 3. Generally, I'll know where it's going, but I'm not quite sure how it'll get there, which inevitably leads to some point around the 85% mark when I say something in the group chat to Stephanie and all the friends, like, damn it, I have spent 180,000 words just saying that at this point they escaped the convent and now I'm here and I don't know how they escaped the convent. And <laughs> one has to talk me off a ledge. So I've tried to do more plotting as I go to get me out of that kind of thing. And um, this actually worked rather well for the last book I did, after the one after the Rose Code. Um, I don't know about you ladies, but I had the attention span of a goldfish during 2020 oh, during lockdown. Yeah. I felt like I could not face that that blank that blank page and that blinking cursor to start drafting a new book. So I just kept outlining and outlining and outlining, and I went way further than I usually did. So by the time I was ready to draft, suddenly it was like 100,000 words in three and a half months, super quick. And I was just like, oh my gosh. I kind of blame, I kind of would say probably mostly the outlining. Although I do think part of me was sort of like, since this was fall of last year and everything is horrible with the pandemic and the lockdown and the election. And I think part of me was like, you know, I want to escape into any world, but this one. So my brain took a dive into the wonderfully calming, soothing spa town of the world that, was the World War II Russian front, which is so notorious for being (laughs) relaxing and, you know, yay and positive. My brain was desperate to escape any way it could. (laughs) So it escaped into a book that I had plotted out really, really meticulously. And the result was a uh, book that came out extra fast. Oh, that's awesome. It's crazy. Christy, do you want to pull one? I think it's crazy how... Sorry, Patty. Get that delay. I was going to pull the live question. I know I'm too glitchy to pull the live question. Go on. Okay. Well, I just have to ask this one because I love it so much. Um, Rachel McMillan, it's her question. It's so good. Um, I know. Hey, Rachel. Um, She said, Stephanie, how in Hades did you balance three different time periods with such a plum and so intricately? Was there a lot of outlining or sticky notes? (laughs) There was a lot of crying involved. (laughs) That I get. Um, Kate can attest to that. Um, 
I what, what I wanted to do for this story is I wanted to make sure that each of the women was very distinct. They were each living in a different time period with its own uh, slang and technology. So I wrote each of the three stories separately and then thought, oh, I'll just sw- weave them together. No, I'll just weave them together. Yeah. <laughs> There's no just weaving them together. Um, it was a real struggle to figure out, for example, which story should go first. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, an endless round of debate. And um, I think Kate had to help with giving me an intervention on that as well. Like, just pick one. Anyone. <laughs> um, so I really, hearing you say that I did it with a plume makes my night. I mean, really, <laughs> I can't tell you how delighted I am to hear that. I got away with it, Kate. I got away with it. <laughs> See, and what I was telling you, like at midnight on all those nights saying, no, 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 you, you have not forgotten how to write a book. You know how to write a book. I swear you do. You, you, you just don't remember right now, but you do know. <laughs> and Rachel knows. I Rachel mean, knows. so for her That's to say true. that she reads everything. So she knows. True. Stephanie, Stephanie, I read your book early too. And you know, I, oh my gosh, I'm just in awe of how you tied everything together. And I, yeah, I, you, you intimidate the heck out of me. You're you're so good at that. Seriously. So ladies, I have a question too. Every week, one of our favorite parts of the show is receiving a writing tip from our guests. And since there are two of you this week, we're expecting double the wisdom. So um, Stephanie, do you want to start off by giving us a short writing tip? We would love to hear it. So I'm going to pass along the best writing advice I ever got, and it was this. It was that you have to learn to hold two simultaneous thoughts in your head. The first one being that what you're doing is special and important, that your work is great. And the second thought is that your work is terrible and it needs a lot of help. (laughs) (laughs) And if you can keep both of these thoughts in your head, You'll keep the faith and you'll be able to persevere to the end of the project, but you won't get too invested in your words and hopefully you won't get a big head because there's so much that can be honed. Your craft can change over your career. You can learn so much from other authors, which is why I love having author friends and why I love this whole show and and Kate and all of you because other authors are going to help up your game. And when Kate and I write together or Laura and I write together. We're always trying to impress each other or amuse each other. And that makes us better writers. And I don't think you become a better writer if you're so convinced that your words are precious, that you have done something perfect. Mm -hmm. that's That's the best advice I got. That is a great tip. Thank you. Kate, how about you? Do you have a writing tip you can share with us tonight? Absolutely. Um, The one that I really think of is that, you need to give yourself permission to be bad. Yeah. And by that, I mean that I've seen so many writers who get so paralyzed by that voice in their head that says, this is terrible. This sucks. You know, how can I can never show this to anyone that they never really get started and they never actually get it down. And they just, the project dies before it even starts because of that voice in the head. And, I think it was Nora Roberts who said, I can fix a bad page. I can't fix a blank page. Yeah. I think of that all the time because 
you know, it doesn't matter that it's bad. My rough drafts are terrible. Stephanie's rough drafts are terrible. I bet all of you here would say your rough drafts are terrible. It's okay. Terrible. Idea. Yeah, exactly. No, I I have not met anybody, any writer who said, yeah, my rough drafts are great. I just sent him right off to the agent. (laughs) If I heard that, I'd be like, oh boy. (laughs) Not as good as you think they are. But the important part with a rough draft is just to get it down. Because if you get it down, no matter how bad it is, you can fix it later. And you can always fix it later. And you don't have to show it to anyone as a new writer before you are feeling ready to. Because that's something else I see is that writers seem to have this idea that you have to have, you have to show it to people. Whereas like, I know plenty of people who take dance classes and don't think that they're necessarily going to be, you know, dancing in a ballet. I ne- I see plenty of people who, you know, take art classes and don't think that they're going to have a show, you know, uh, in New York, but yeah. writers seem to think it doesn't count unless someone else sees it. You don't have to show it to anyone before you think it's ready. That's fine. And you don't, it's just the only thing is get it out there, no matter how bad it is, then fix it and then show it when it's ready to be shown. And then the whole, that really will help. And as my military husband would say, embrace the suck. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Embrace it. Just embrace it. Just get it down. Love it. (laughs) So I'm going to sum up your writing tip with embrace the suck. I love it. Put it on a put it on a put it on a t-shirt. Yeah, or t-shirts. There you go. (laughs) People might take it wrong. I'm not sure. It might be wrong. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, ladies, please stick around because we have one more question for you. And it's one of our favorites. But first, we want to remind all of you out there to check out our podcasts. We have started recording even more podcasts than just the show. And we'll always post links under announcements each time a new one goes out. And one went out today with our beloved Christy Woodson Harvey. It's a lot of fun and it's totally different from the show. So you'll like hanging out with us there too. And don't forget to join the Friends in Fiction official book club. And it's hosted by our darlings, Lisa Harrison and Brenda Gardner. And this month they're reading Patty's Amazing Surviving Savannah. Yay. And next month they'll be reading Under the Southern Sky, which... If we haven't mentioned it yet on the show, comes out um, three weeks from yesterday. Three weeks. Actually, it's it's like two weeks and change, which is kind of (laughs) terrifying. Um, But now is a great time to pre-order. If you um, choose our bookstore tonight, you will get your incredible, wait, I can't see myself, your incredible friends and fiction sunglasses with your pre-order and your 10% off. Um, But it is available for pre-order wherever books are sold. And I can't wait to see you um, at our book club meeting next month. And don't forget to join us next week right here at 7 p.m. Eastern as we welcome New York Times bestselling author Jocelyn Jackson and get to see the very first trailer for Mary Kay Andrews' upcoming novel, The Newcomer, which I have read, and it is spectacular. It is. It absolutely is. Um, And... uh, what I'm going to tell you about. I'm going to tell you about tomorrow night. Um, <laughs> speaking of bestsellers, we've got uh, our friend Lisa Scottolini, uh, who is um, the author of Eternal, which just hit the list, the, the list, which is the New York Times bestseller list at Yay. number four tonight. So we're so thrilled and happy for Lisa. And um, the way you um, catch us tomorrow night is go to Foxtail Bookshop. 
facebook.com and you'll find the link to the zoom there and we're going to all be on there grilling lisa about her new bestseller uh eternal and now we've got one more question for stephanie and kate that we always our favorite how talk to us (laughs) (laughs) i'm low on wine (laughs) y'all What were the values of reading and writing in your childhood? Thank you, Sean. For- Sean's got like the Hail Mary pass. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's like the cameraman. The Chiron or whatever it is called. Thank you, Sean. Yes. Tell us about that and how that made you into the writers that you are today. Uh, Kate, you want to go first? Well, I'm very lucky because um, I happen to be raised by a librarian. And my mother not only turned me into a reader, she turned my dad into a reader because he had never been much of a reader. And then, well, he started living with a librarian. Uh, So he became a reader and then both of them read to me. And the thing is, is that I know a lot of I know various folks have said, oh, I was reading by age two. And I was not reading particularly early, but I was hearing stories from a very early age. And I was obsessed and they read to me and I just loved it. And so by the time I was writing and reading myself, I had that love of story. I was already making Mm -hmm. my own. And I, you know, those memories I have from when I was a kid and my parents reading to me are some of the best that I have, especially my dad, because not having been a reader, he was reading me all these classic kid books and he didn't know how they came out. So it's like, oh, "Oh God, we got to the end of Robin Hood. We're both crying. (laughs) My mom walks home. We look like we've been to a funeral. You know, it's so it's that whole thing of I do really do believe in that whole saying that, you know, children are created readers in the laps of their parents. Uh, Oh, I'm going to write that on a pillow. That's really wonderful. That's how it became important to me. And that's how and why I'm writing my own stories as soon as I could write. How about you, Stephanie? So my parents were both teachers. They, um, they met because they had an adjoining greenhouse and they in their high school and they had a lot of books in the house and I was allowed to read anything I wanted. Um, even though they were very strict about television shows, I think they probably thought that I wouldn't understand something that was too advanced for me in the written form. Um, jokes on them. I understood. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So I started reading stories and then I got into writing because of my grandmother, who was not a big reader, she considered Vogue to be her favorite book. Mm. Um, <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. loved to shop um, garage sales. And she would always take me and my cousins in the back seat of her lime green Ford Fairlane. And she would have been arrested today because you cannot lock children in the back of a car and go into a garage sale anymore. <laughs> But that's what she used to do. And since I was the oldest, she would say, if any of these kids leave the car, you're the one who's in trouble. So (laughs) if we're going to keep them in the car, I would have to spin stories like Scheherazade with, you know, really cliffhanger endings to keep them from leaving so that I wouldn't get in trouble. So that is how I became a writer. And I do want to say that as far as reading being important, I know that Kate Quinn read a book called Celia Garth when she was a girl. This is her book, which I kidnapped when she left Maryland. I'm holding it hostage. This is proof of life. (laughs) Um, She cannot have it back until she comes back home. 
That is low, Dre. You are holding the book hostage. That's true love. She knows how to get to you. That's a friend. Exactly. So to all of you out there, keep hanging out with us because we're going to chat somewhere in the after show. But for now, we'll say goodbye to Kate and Stephanie and encourage you as strongly as possible to go out and buy both of their books, preferably from our bookseller of the week, A Likely Story, where you can get 10% off with the code FFMARCH21. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Y'all are awesome. It was such a pleasure. You're amazing. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. Y'all are awesome. Ladies, it was such a pleasure. Thank you, Thank so you for having us. Good night, you. you guys. How great are they? I think we should raise a toast to those ladies. They have yes. just coming oh, out. to them. And New York Times list, so bravo, ladies. Oh, bravo. And I'm wearing my sunglasses for all of the after show. <laughs> it was just such a well, I'm going to wear mine when I get them, I promise. Where did Patty disappear? Did she? Patty, are you ghosting us? She goes, there, there she is. There you are. Aloha, Patty. <laughs> You guys, oh, it, am I st- am I still sounding glitchy? You're, you're am I like bad at all? No. You know what? You're just okay. your lips move different, but the sound is fine. It's good. Okay, okay. I just but I have so much I wanted to say to them because we write in these same genres and we have these. Um, you know, I'm just such a big fan of their books, and I was like, but my voice isn't going to match my mouth. And like, <laughs> no, it wasn't bad at all. Well, it's hard cool. when they're friends and they have their little dialogue going on, and yeah. want to jump yeah. in and hear it. I mean, there is really great to see yeah. that. Yeah, we're gonna have to try to that Google Hangout deal. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I don't know what that is. Um, I just rely I on Google Hangout before. It's kind of like this. I think it'd be easier than texting. I the, I, I, the texts are so small. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we do we do have quite the text chain though, don't we? Right? Like, yeah. I, yeah. I wonder if there's a way to go back and quantify how many texts we've exchanged since. This I mean, please count thousands and thousands and thousands of thousands. After I get after I get through with this massive move into Coquina Cottage, I'm going to start. Yeah. The 7 a.m. Yes. whip snapping because my agent. Oh, please. I, 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 please. No, I, I'm please. going on tour. Y'all don't do it until after tour. Yeah. Okay. Well, Stuart, the other day we were talking about something and he goes, Dare I ask how many words today? And I said, Well, I said a lot of words. <laughs> and I emailed and texted a lot of words, but I didn't write a lot of fiction yeah. words. Yeah, I, I, I think we should say after Kristen's book is out, we really hit the pavement. We, you know, we just really. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. I, I, oh, I have to hit the time, pavement though. way yeah, before then. Sooner. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think we start as soon as we can, and when you need to take a little break from your book tour or for your book tour, that's okay. But I think, you know, we just dive in and hit the ground running. Christy, I want a screenshot of you so bad right now that I'm doing it. Am I influencing you guys (laughs) to want the sunglasses? Yes, I want them. I already have like two copies of the book, but I think I'm going to order another just for the sunglasses. (laughs) There you go. Sean, well, the good news is, Christy, I sent you a pair earlier this week, so you'll get them. (laughs) Oh, I think next week we should all wear them. Yes. Yeah, sure. great idea. Great I agree. Idea. Mm-hmm. Well, I like the friends and fiction on the side. I, I know. I love yeah, it's not cute. 
Yeah. Yeah. Sean, Sean wants some. Sean wants some. Sean. Sean, Sean Josie's lucky day. I want a picture of Josie baby Josie. Oh, that's right. A picture of the baby wearing the sunglasses. That's oh, what we need. Or that would be fun. I was, when I was re- reading your essay, which was so good, I'm so <laughs> envious of your talent at writing essays. That is, you're so about, good at it. You know, when Andy was a baby, we had a housekeeper who had some very odd ideas. Her name was Veronica. And I, uh, I was working full time as a reporter at the Atlanta Constitution. And I, I came home one and one Saturday, I guess I was digging through the little chest of drawers in his room. He was about probably 18 months old. And I found an egg. A real egg. Uh And I'm like, oh, my God, do we have some kind of snake laying eggs (laughs) in the house? And I... um, so when I saw her on Monday, I'm like, Veronica, I found an egg in Andy's baby clothes. She goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I put that in there. I'm like, what? She said, yes, it's very important. You put an egg in a baby's, in with his clothes um, so that uh, he'll be healthy. And then <laughs> well, there you go. Because no one will go near him. She had, <laughs> Andy had very curly hair like mine, curlier than mine, even kinky. And, um, you know, we were going to give him his hair, his first haircut. He did have a lot of hair. And uh, she said, no, 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 no. You can't have, you can't give him a haircut until he's two. Otherwise he'll stutter. Well, I got to use that in a book. This That's is excellent fabulous. advice. I mean, words to live by. But you know, well, 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 what do you mean? <laughs> if you don't refrigerate them. I mean, like you could have eggs. I mean, because I was it's thinking right about up. You- it's dried up. Yeah. If you don't refrigerate them, you can have an egg forever and it doesn't smell like that. It's like once it's been cooked, though, it's. Yeah. You yeah. have to get to that point. Thank you very much. And then yeah. south of Palmetto Bar. to start gathering um, friends and fiction superstitions. Because that those were some good ones right there. Oh, I will, you know, yeah. writing superstitions, children's yeah. superstitions. Oh, I have yeah. so. You know, I'm Irish <laughs> and we have a lot. Well, Patty, too. We have a lot of superstitions, like a lot. And I make up a lot of my own. Like, <laughs> like I, there's have the one rituals. I have writing rituals. And if I don't do something a certain way, I'm always certain. Oh, keep that in mind, because wouldn't that be a fun question to ask? Writing with rituals. We have rituals. so many superstitions yeah, in our yeah, family yeah. that I don't even realize are like not normal i mean like there are things that i just are so ingrained in me that i'm like oh wait like maybe you don't actually have to like lick your finger and touch the windshield when a black cat crosses <laughs> it might be a well, maybe it's not a why would you take yeah. the chance and maybe, you if maybe if your ear itches it doesn't mean someone's talking about you and if your nose itches, maybe you're not going to have company. <laughs> or and maybe hair, if you stir your tea clockwise or counterclockwise, you're not going to have bad luck. And I, I thought know. I was woo-woo. I don't know about yeah. that. That is Patty. Okay, we'll have to talk about so that later. If your hand, if your hand yeah. itches, uh, you're going to meet somebody new. And if your foot itches, you're going on a journey. Yeah. Well, nice. Or, or you have, or you have my or mother's family was very itchy. That is hilarious. <laughs> I actually think it'd be a really good question. The yeah, we should definitely rituals. talk about yeah. that. Christy, we're still getting a lot of questions about where to get the sunglasses. Can okay, well, let me model them again because because they're just <laughs> maybe that, that was working. Yeah. Um, so the way that you get the sunglasses <laughs> is to pre-order 
my mom is laughing. And so now I'm laughing is to pre-order um, <laughs> under the Southern sky from a likely story. You get 10% off and a pair of friends of fiction sunglasses. You don't have to do anything. You just pre-order under the Southern sky and they will let me know. And I will send you your snazzy friends and fiction glasses and you can rock them all summer long, whether but you're under the Southern sky or not. But it has to come from a likely story. It has, has to, to come, come from, from a likely story. story. Oh, yes, yeah. from a likely yeah, story. Yeah. In Maryland. That's awesome. Just writing well, I'm sushi waiting, guys. I'm going to say adios. I am. Um, it's been a long, good. long day. And it's so fun to see you. It's been the highlight of my day. Aw. Like, yeah, I are the greatest. So fun. Roll out of bed and get in the car and drive four hours to tidy. Oh, with safe drive, my darling. Oh, and thanks. Good luck with that. I yeah. can't wait to see it. Yes, right, that was fast. See you tomorrow night. Okay. Good Bye. night, y'all. Bye. Aloha. Thank you for tuning in. Join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.